lesson tonight, we um, uh, have given you pretty much the framework for how to lead a soul to Christ. We're going to be giving some time in the next several weeks to practice and uh, here in church uh, at, at different times. Probably won't get to it this Wednesday night, but next Wednesday night, Lord willing, to have a period of time maybe to practice. Um, Lord willing, if we get through all the material tonight, uh, we're going to have our first lesson uh, on a particular group of people, uh, and that's going to be the Catholics and how you can lead a Catholic to Christ or some things that may help. Uh, uh, there's no surefire way other than the Holy Spirit's got to deal with their heart. Um, and so Brother Harold is putting some material together. He uh, was a Catholic, very staunch Catholic, prior to being saved. And I had asked him several weeks ago if when we got to that portion of it, if he would uh, be willing to come and tell us some things that helped him to come to the realization of the truth. Uh, and you'll find as we do several of these different folks, uh, different groups, uh, that I will use either people to come into the service or perhaps some videos where someone like them has been interviewed because I think it helps us to understand what their mindset was and how the Lord used something to draw them to the truth and to the gospel. And then that helps us to understand what we can do when we're talking with them. And uh, anyway, so preparing for that and getting some things in order... Um, I felt that it was very, very critical that we do the lesson we're going to do tonight. And I will start off by saying this. We've got a ton of material to get through, and I don't know if we'll get through all of it tonight. Um, but this is not exhaustive, and I don't mean this to become a history lesson uh, where you feel like you're in school. But it's important for us to understand how we got to the place that we're at today where we have different groups and they all think they're right. And it's critical that we understand through history how this happened. Now, I'm going to give you very briefly tonight, and I'm going to not rush through it. I want you to get it and to grasp it, and I'm going to do my best to draw something up here that you can draw. That's why I gave you a blank piece of paper uh, to help with some of this. And it's going to be a very uh, high-level framework of some history and I would like, if you wouldn't mind, for you to uh, keep it in your notebooks because as we go through some things over the next several months, we will take sections of this history and expand them uh, really, really big and get into some of the detail of some of it um, as we deal with some of these different religions that are out there today. Did anybody not get a blank piece of paper to write on? Okay, Brother Jonathan is walking around. Keep your hands up for a moment, please, and Brother Jonathan will bring those to you. Does anybody need a pen tonight? Anybody not have a pen? Well, we've got to wait till they put their hands down for the paper, I guess. that would, Or else hold your foot up if you need. No, don't hold your foot up. <laughs> if you need a pen, wiggle your ear, okay? All right, so everybody have a pen? Okay. All right, last week at the very end of the lesson, I went through quickly some distinctives and some of the things that we talked about are doctrinal issues, but primarily some distinctives that identify us as Baptists. There are a lot of groups that are out there today that are uh, religious groups, what we would consider to be religious groups, and many of them have uh, some, and many of them have a lot of the things that we hold to. Uh, we're fairly exclusive in the area of holding to all of them. 
And uh, there are very few other groups out there that would be in agreement with all of the tenets that we gave out last week. And so we're going to go back through those. And I told you I'd do this last week. We're going to give you some scripture for it. I don't want you just to take my word for what these distinctives are. Uh, because one of the great things that distinguishes us as Baptists is we believe that the Bible is our sole authority of faith and practice. I want to say one other thing as a premise that we will hold to throughout the study, and that is this. Um, all of us uh, are in error. We were either in error before we got saved, or a lot of us have been in error after we got saved. And uh, how many of you have come across something that in Scripture you used to believe one thing about it, and then later on you, the light bulb kind of turned on, you're like, oh, I didn't see that before. Anybody been that way? Uh, there's times I listen sometimes to messages I preached 15, 20 years ago, and I shake my head and I think, what? Where did I come up with that? You know? Um, we're all in error. We're human, okay? What makes the difference, I believe, is when we, when we say that we're uh, in error and we're not going to correct it. So what shows us when we're in error? What, what tells us we've, we've made a mistake? Is there, some, is there some rule that we can go to? Is there some measurement that we can uh, lay our beliefs alongside of to see if they measure up? The Bible, okay? The Bible is the absolute authority. Would you agree with me on that? Okay, well, it's the absolute authority. So when we lay our beliefs and our thoughts alongside the Bible and they don't agree, which one of us is wrong? Okay, so this is what makes a big difference in our Christian growth. Uh, whether or not when we find out that we're wrong and we're in error, we come back and we say, boy, I need, to, I need to adjust my way of thinking then to fit what the Bible says. Okay, would you be in agreement with that? We hold that the Bible is the sole authority. You'll find that a lot of the groups we talk about are going to use the Bible. It's not that they're not going to use the Bible, but they're going to use also some other things that they're going to hold to. And many times there are conflicts between what's said and what the Bible teaches, and we'll uh, find that out as we go through the study. So it's very, very important. Uh, don't be offended uh, if we find something that we disagree on. Let's go to Scripture and see what the Bible says. Would you, would you agree with me on that and help us with that? Okay? Because we want to be right, don't we? We want to be what the Bible says. Um, a couple weeks ago I was preaching on Sunday morning, and I was talking about the, uh, the eyewitness account. Peter said, you know, I was an eyewitness to uh, the time that the Holy Spirit came and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well, or God the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I made reference to the fact that that, that was at uh, the, the baptism of Jesus. And just because just it was the first thing that popped in my mind when I was preaching, and I, it wasn't something I had planned to say in the message, it just came into my mind when I was preaching. And I was thinking of the time when Jesus was baptized and that happened. And after the service, somebody said, Pastor, where did you get that from? And as soon as they said it, I thought, that makes sense, because Peter said he was an eyewitness, and Jesus didn't even have his disciples when he got baptized. And they, what he was referring to is the time on the Mount of Transfiguration, when also God said, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. And uh, so I was in error. I messed up on that. I, my, my mouth moved faster or, than my brain did. And so the difference is when we say, okay, no, no, that's the way it is, and we're going to hold to it, uh, and we're not going to change. And you'll find as we go down through history, a lot of the problems that have developed that have caused there to be so many other groups out there, 
the question comes up, and maybe even you've been asked this question, with all the religions that are out there, how do you know that yours is right? And hopefully we're going to show some of that, okay? I need for all of us to be convinced from God's Word, not because Brother Greg said it, certainly not because of that. I mean, I'm the guy that gets up and says that that happened at Jesus' baptism, and it wasn't. So uh, we want to find out what the Bible says about it, okay? So we're going to look at some things. All right, let's move on through. We're going to show you two lines of Bible uh, church history, and to be able to delineate between groups, I want us to make sure that we have these down, uh, the uh, tenets that we believe in. Now, these are not all of the doctrines, but these are ones that are divisive. Uh, does, does, is there anyone, and, and I don't want to say it that way, I don't want to, I, okay, I'm, it's just us, right, we're family here, I'm going to ask a question, don't be embarrassed, okay, please don't be embarrassed, there are times, there are times that somebody says something and I'm like, what in the world are they talking about, I don't know, is there anybody here that when I use the word ecumenical, you don't know what that is, anybody, okay, ecumenical is when a group of unlike-minded religious people say let's all get together and decide on what we can believe on and be in agreement on and then let the rest of it just not matter and we'll all link arms and we'll all be together and we'll all be happy in fellowship and work in each other's ministries even though we have very strong doctrinal differences would be called ecumenical this would be um uh uh, churches that come together, it, uh, I hate to say it this way, but uh, non-denominational churches would be considered uh, ecumenical-minded. In other words, hey, it doesn't matter what, what doctrine you believe. We just all want to come together, sing some good songs, feel good, uh, have some uh, things from the Scripture that just tell us we're positive-minded and everything's health, wealth, and prosperity. Let's go out of here. And that would be the type of what we're talking about. There's no divisive doctrine that's taught. And um, I will say this, that you're entitled to your belief on something but you're, and how you feel about something. That's, and that's fine. God gave us that. But we're not entitled to change the truth. If the truth is there, the truth doesn't change just because we feel differently about it. Um, so while we can be entitled to our opinions about some things, when it comes down to it, the truth is what matters, okay? With that being said, if two groups of people come to the Bible and one says one thing and one says another thing, it becomes divisive, not, not hateful. Please don't get me wrong. I think over the years, because Baptists have always stood on very firmly on a very narrow set of beliefs from Scripture, that people have mistaken that for hatefulness or lack of loving people. That is not at all what we're saying. What we're simply saying is, I'll love you, I'll go to lunch with you, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll come to your child's birthday party, but I'm not going to come worship with you because my doctrine doesn't line up with yours. And it's not because I hate you, it's just that I can't be in agreement there. There's a separation that has to happen. Everybody understand where we're going with that? Okay, so not hateful, not hateful. I'm afraid some pastors in our Baptist churches get up, and they don't understand that. They think, boy, it's got to be drive at home, and, and if you don't make five people mad before they, the message is over, you haven't done your job preaching. I, that is not right. That is not biblical. 
And that is not scriptural. A lot of preachers equate spirituality for yelling real loud in the pulpit and jumping over pews. Uh, we want to be doctrinally correct. And as, as much as within us is to hold to what the Bible says. And if the Bible can, if someone can take the Bible and show us line upon line and precept upon precept that our belief is wrong in this area, then we need to look at it and say, then I need to follow what the Bible says. Are we in agreement on that? Okay. So these are some things. I gave them to you last week. We're going to look at some verses real quick. Let me see if I can get them to come up here. All right. First one is, the Bible is our sole authority of faith and practice. Okay. Uh, You should have written these down last week. If not, you can write them down. Uh, Let's turn in our Bibles. Keep your Bibles handy. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture here tonight. 2 Timothy chapter number 3, verse number 16, which is a very familiar passage of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. Now, that doesn't mean without sin here. That means that we are matured, we're growing, we've, uh, be, we're becoming perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. There, are, there, there have been times I've come uh, across some some pastors even, uh, of or the, the, the biblical leader of their denomination. And we've talked about the Bible. I had a very dear friend of mine that, that was of a different denomination. He and I are very good friends. To this day, we're very good friends. But we don't agree doctrinally. And again, a great illustration that we don't have to be hateful. But I'm not going to go, and he knows, I'm not going to go worship or preach in his church and, and try to disrupt his church, and neither is he going to do it with me. Uh, we are doctrinally different. But when we discuss the Scriptures, one of the, the great divisive points that we have is I believe and hold to the fact that all of the Bible is what God said, every word of it. It is the Word of God. His opinion, his mindset is it contains the Word of God. There's some portions where it is the Word of God, some portions where it is not the Word of God. And I, I, we've discussed and we've talked and I've tried to share illustrations and even this passage of Scripture. And uh, so I'll ask him, you know, well, then how do you know? If, if that's the case, how would you ever know what part of it was God saying it and what part was just there? And, and of course, his mindset is that if it touches your heart, if it moves you, then that must be what God had. And if it doesn't, then it's not. But the truth of the matter is there's times I've read a portion of Scripture and it hasn't stirred my heart. And five or six months later, maybe I'm going through some other circumstances in life. I read it again, and now all of a sudden it's very near to me and dear to me. Any of you ever been there? So that's not a good test, is it? So we believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof. So if all of the Scripture is given by God and is inspired by God and preserved by God in our King James Bible, amen? Amen? In our King James Bible, it is preserved without error in our King James Bible. Then uh, can we not hold to it and say then that can be our sole authority of faith and practice? You say, well, Brother Greg, what if God gave more to us after the Scriptures were completed? I'm glad you asked that. We have Scripture for that. Aren't you glad the Bible helps us with this? All right, let's look at Galatians chapter 1, verse number 8. We have studied this in our study of how to lead the soul to Christ. This is one that you're going to find 
is a point of disagreement with a lot of folks uh, and a lot of denominations. And this is Galatians chapter number 1, verse number 8. Paul says, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. We have the completed revelation of what God wanted us to have in this book called the Bible. We have outside examples and support for that in that the apostles quoted what was already compiled as our Old Testament. They quoted those things as the Bible, as Scripture. And so there's no question, certainly on those passages and portions of Scripture. And then we trust that God has given us the full revelation of His Word because He says that there's no other thing that needs to be given. We have the completed revelation. No one can come and teach something other than what has already been given to us in God's Word. So then we hold to it, not only that it is thorough enough to be our sole authority, but it's all that we need for our sole authority. All right? Number two, number two, the autonomy of the local church. The autonomy of the local church. And I forgot to write my verses down for this one, so I will try to give you a couple of... I'll give you a couple of New Testament examples. I won't have the references for them, and I'll try to look them up next week. I forgot to write them down here. But the autonomy of the local church simply is this, that the church, local churches, local bodies of believers, uh, have every right to govern themselves, uh, be self-governed. Um, we can say, okay, this, these are the offerings that came in. Here's how we're going to disperse them. Um, we can govern ourselves that way. We can practice church discipline if necessary as a local body of believers, um, it's, hard to, it's hard to practice church discipline on the universal church, okay? So there are certain things the Bible talks about, uh, how to go about a process if somebody is blatantly uh, causing harm and sinfulness in the church that's creating an issue. Um, the use of the church's resources, uh, sending out missionaries, commissioning missionaries. Again, those are difficult things to do with the universal church that people teach about. So we believe and the autonomy of a local church. Um, and uh, so uh, some illustrations of that is uh, in the book of Acts, of course, there's a lot of times that talks about uh, even after the day of Pentecost, there were uh, 3,000 that were saved in the Bible, says were added unto them. Uh, later on it says they were added to the church. God added to the church daily such as should be saved. And again, dealing with the church at Jerusalem specifically. Uh, that's who it's talking about in the first part of the book of Acts. I'll try to get those passages for you for next week. And I apologize I didn't write them down for tonight. I, I must have slipped over that one. But uh, anyway, uh, those are good examples of, of the local church. Uh, the fact that Paul established local church bodies and they were to pray for and even sometimes send to the needs of other churches. There are occasions where um, we have sent to the needs of other ministries. Um, Second Baptist Church does scripture, and for a long time we supported monthly their scripture, their seed sowing ministry. Um, the, uh, every once in a while we'll hear of a small church that's struggling. I know when I first came here to Keith Heist Baptist Church, we had the big flood in DeSoto. You all remember that? And uh, Beacon Baptist Church got flooded, had about 18 inches of water inside their auditorium. And they had to tear, I mean, they had to literally gut the whole building out. We took up uh, an offering, pulled some money from our 
building fund, and we sent them, I think it was about three or $4,000 to help with some of that. That's what churches do. It's hard to do that again to a universal church. But it does not mean that we are to combine together and to have a head, a human head, over a group of churches, a president or a board that dictates to the churches. Who's the head of the church? Who is? Jesus is the head of the church. Isn't that right? Is that what the Bible says? So Jesus is the head of every local body of believers. The pastor is not the head. Amen? I'm glad for that too. I don't want that responsibility. Uh, he's simply there to help lead and guide, but God is the head of our church. When we do something, we make decisions, we pray, and we seek, what does God want us to do here at Keepa Heights Baptist Church? And so that's what we hold to. All right? Uh, priesthood of the believers. Uh, we talked about the priesthood of the believers. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter number 2. 1 Peter chapter number 2. And uh, look in verse number 5. I'm going to back up to verse number, oh, let's, let's just start from the beginning. We'll read down through about verse number 9. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there were, uh, shall be false prophets, uh, teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord, and bought them, and bring upon, uh, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Uh, and many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into the chains into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And, am I in the right place? I'm in Second Peter. I'm sitting here thinking, wait a minute, that does not fit. I went to the wrong place. First Peter chapter. I'm sitting here, where is this at? All right, let's try this again. I did that a couple weeks ago. I was in the wrong one. All right, Second Peter, or First Peter, let me get it right. First Peter chapter 2, there we go. All right, let's look at verse number 4. That looks a lot better. There we go. To whom coming up also unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up in a spiritual house, and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, by Christ Jesus. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion the chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye... Not the unbelievers, but ye are a chosen priest uh, generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should so for, show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Look with me at verse number 5 for a minute. Ye also are lively stones, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Christ Jesus. Can anybody think of anything that we are to sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ? Scripture-wise. Not to be saved, but as a sacrifice of worship. How about Romans chapter number 12? Anybody know that one? Verses 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? Living sacrifice. 
Not for our salvation. We don't have to work our way there. Aren't you glad of that? But we do have the right to give to God directly. We don't have to go through a priest. We have the right to talk to God. To come to Him in prayer anytime we want to. We don't have to go through a man. Look with me in 1 Timothy chapter number 2. 1 Timothy chapter number 2. And I will get the right book this time. 1 Timothy chapter number 2, verse number 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man who? Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Because of that, look with me if you will. And I tried to find this verse last week and I was one chapter away. Hebrews chapter number 4. Hebrews chapter number 4. So because of that, because we have the mediator, Christ Jesus, between God and man, look with me in Hebrews chapter number 4 and verse number 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may have turned mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter number 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And then Isaiah goes on to explain the, the throne of God. And the seraphims that are flying around and uh, covering their faces and flying with their wings and covering their feet. And they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And uh, we find that Isaiah is in the very presence and the throne room of God. Now he did that by way of God doing something very special with Isaiah to use him for something. But you've got to understand something that before Christ died on Calvary, how did men approach God? They had to go to the temple or the tabernacle and bring a sacrifice. And a priest was their mediator, was it not? Once the, the crucifixion took place, the Bible says that that veil that was in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was from the outer court and the, the, the inner workings of the temple, that veil was rent in two. So that now we have direct access to God. Individual soul liberty. By the way, uh, I'm sorry, priesthood of the believer. By the way, that also tells us that we have to also give an account to God. Every person must stand individually. Now, we're going to talk about that when we get to individual soul liberty a little bit later. But let me just say this when, when it comes to the priesthood of the believer. That also tells us that no one person, now follow me on this, and I'm squeaking to death tonight. No one person is any higher or closer to God than any other person. <clears throat> you don't need a pope to be over you and the laity to be beneath. You know, for many, many years, the belief was that the common person that was in the church, what the term that was used was laity, the lay people of the church were not able to read Scripture. They weren't spiritual enough. They were beneath another individual. Priesthood of the believer in our Baptist belief is every single one of us have a right to take this book and hold it on our laps and read it for ourselves. Amen? It's kind of hard to have doctrinal error creep into the church when every member of that church gets to read it for himself or herself and see it with their own eyes. You know when it's ripe for doctrinal error? When one person stands behind the pulpit, and even in the old days, they would chain the Bibles up to the pulpit, and nobody could read them except the person that got behind the pulpit. 
And they could get up here and they could say anything they want to. They could say that in First Gregalonians it says that if you have a blue car that you are not spiritual. Therefore, go out and sell all your cars if they're not blue or else get them painted. And, and how would you have any way of checking that? Priesthood of the believers. We have the right to read God's Word for ourselves and let Him work in our hearts. All right? Uh, <coughs> letter T. <coughs> two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Let's look in Acts chapter number 2. We'll look at these very quickly. By the way, these are not exhaustive verses. I'm trying to give you enough that you can say, okay, I, I see in Scripture where we get these from, okay? Again, as we go through some things, we're going to be dealing with doctrine. Uh, we're going to take certain doctrines uh, one week at a time and deal with them in detail and in depth. So you'll have plenty of material, Lord willing, by the end of the year here. All right, let's look in uh, Acts chapter number 2, verse number 41. Acts chapter 2, verse number 41. Uh, let's back up to verse... Oh, let's back up to verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall have the gift of the Holy Ghost, for the promise is unto you and your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord your, our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saving, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly, what? Received his word. Were baptized. And the same day they were added unto them about 3,000. So we find a pattern that the Bible gives us. And we like to hold to the biblical pattern of doing things. What was the first thing that happened before they, they were baptized? They believed his word. They received the word, okay? They that gladly received the word. We were talking about this Sunday morning that faith is nothing more than taking God at his word. For him to say, here's what it needs to be for salvation and for us to say, okay, I'm trusting that. I'm receiving that word. I'm trusting. That's where my faith is. So, so these people were saved and then they're baptized. Notice that. Now look with me in Acts chapter number 8. We read this one a couple weeks ago. In uh, Acts chapter number 8, we're dealing here with, um, if I remember correctly, I believe this is when Philip goes to the Ethiopian. <clears throat> Verse number 30, And Philip ran hither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I accept some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he should come up and sit with him. And he tells him what uh, scripture he's at. The Bible says in verse number 34, And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet of himself or some other man. And Philip opened his mouth and began the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, there came a, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they both went, went both down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. There's a lot in this passage, but again, we find that he was saved first, and then he was baptized. In fact, Philip said, you're not supposed to be baptized until this takes place. So we don't just say baptism, even though that's what I have written up here, but can I have you put an extra word with it? Believers' baptism. 
That is going to be a key issue throughout church history. Probably one of the most disastrous issues, probably the one single issue that is the root of literally millions of people being martyred over. It doesn't seem like that would be that big of a deal, but it is. It is. Believers, baptism. All right? And then the Lord's Supper. Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And we're going to read in verse number 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 23. Anybody missing a verse that I referenced that I've given that you need me to repeat? Miss Kim? Okay, Acts 8.36. That's okay, Acts 8.36. I'll try to repeat them two or three times. Feel free to raise a hand if I'm going fast and you need me to repeat something. You're not going to bother me at all to interrupt, okay? Okay. Um, if you'll see me after this, I'll, we'll look through the notes and see what you're missing. Will that work? Okay. All right, so... All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 23. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered, uh, which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. That's a key phrase. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This is the cup of the New Testament. This cup is the New Testament. In my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat of this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. So we find that he establishes uh, the Lord's Supper to be done as a way of remembrance. I'm not going to reteach the lesson on the covenant, but our, our Bible is divided into two testaments, um, two covenants, if you will, the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll find in the book of Hebrews chapters 7, 8, 9, in that area, it talks a lot about the covenant and the testament uh, and how they're intertwined. And uh, so Jesus here in verse number 25 says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. In other words, I'm doing away with the old covenant and now there's a new covenant in place and this is a perfect covenant. Uh, now that he has sacrificed himself, the perfect Lamb of Calvary. And so he establishes the new covenant. The New Testament is all about the new covenant that Christ gave us. And so uh, dealing here with a covenant meal. Now the process of covenant, I've talked about that before. There's a lot of things that happen. But at the end of making a covenant with someone, you would have a covenant meal. In fact, when we get married, there's a reception afterwards many times. That's not just something somebody came up with and thought, hey, that's a good idea. That happened because the marriage was a covenant. And they went through the process of covenant. And the last thing they would do was to have a covenant meal. Uh, the, the cutesy thing where you get a picture of the bride feeding the groom. And the groom feeding the bride. And they usually smear cake on their face. That was to be done in the covenant meal. They were to feed one another and they were to give drink one to another. Look at the Lord's Supper. He breaks the bread and what does he do? He gives it to his disciples. He pours the cup. He gives it to his disciples. What's he doing? He's having the covenant meal of the New Testament. 
The new covenant that's just being made. And the covenant meal was for no other reason than this. Are you ready for this? I love this. The covenant meal was for no other reason than from time to time they would share the meal like that where they would break the bread and give one to another for the purpose of remembering the covenant. It was simply for remembrance. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The Lord's Supper is so much more than just an ordinance that we do. It's part of a confirmation of God's covenant with man. And aren't you glad that he keeps covenant? I'll tell you what, because we sure can't. All right, so two ordinances that are given. All right, number uh, whatever we're on, letter I, individual liberty, individual soul liberty. All right, individual soul liberty. This tells us that every person is responsible for themselves. Um, I can sit here all day long and uh, try to get you to do something, perhaps even contrary to Scripture, or maybe convince you to do something according to Scripture. And you have liberty to either choose to do that or not do that. You can come to Scripture on your own, and you can read Scripture, and Scripture will say certain things to you. It will tell you you ought to do certain things, and it will tell you you ought not to do certain things. And you have liberty to either do that and be obedient or not to be obedient. What do we mean by that? That means you won't, you won't die and go to hell over it. Paul said, all things are lawful for me. But he said this, all things are not expedient. Not everything is for my good. In fact, in Romans chapter number 6, in verse number 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So while we have liberty, that doesn't say that we then use it as license to go sin. And that's an argument a lot of people will give us when we say, We have individual soul liberty. I'm under liberty now. I'm not under the law. And I'm grateful for that. You remember when Ananias and Sapphira... Uh, uh, that's probably not the best example I could use. Uh, let's go back to the Old Testament for a minute. Do you know that if you were rebellious to your parents, you didn't get your phone taken away, you didn't get grounded, you didn't get sent to your room, what happened? You got stoned to death. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen anymore, Jonathan? <laughs> we're now under grace. We have liberty, but we don't use liberty as an occasion to the flesh. All right, let's look at some things here. Galatians chapter number 5, verse number 3. Galatians chapter 5, verse number 3. Um, let's back up to verse number 1 because it talks about our liberty. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. The, man, we ought, to, we ought to be glad that we're in, we have liberty through Christ. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty, wherewith Christ hath made us free. Free from what? He's made us free from the law of sin and death, okay? He's made us free. He quickened us together. He put something new inside of us. There's a new nature. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What was the yoke of bondage here? The law was the bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. But I testify again to every man that is circumcised that uh, he is a debtor to the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Aren't you glad it's now by faith and not by the law? 
Look down to verse number 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto what? Liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Liberty is to be used for good, not for evil. The liberty that we have is to be able to shed the love of Lord Jesus Christ abroad. It's not to be something that is to be abused. All right, let's look in Second Peter. Uh, let's see, Second Peter chapter number 1. I think I'm getting it right this time. Yeah, there we go. Second Peter chapter 1, verse number 20. Did I get the right thing? Okay, yep. Second Peter chapter 1, and uh, let's back up verse number 19. We all, I have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto light that shineth in, dark, in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Knowing this first, now notice this very carefully, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any, what? Private interpretation. So, so watch this very carefully. We have liberty from the law. Liberty, individual soul liberty, means that I will give an account to God myself. Not one of you are responsible to God for me. Neither am I responsible to God for you. Individual soul liberty. However, individual soul liberty does not mean that there are many interpretations of Scripture. God's truth is one truth. It's the same for me as it is for you. And where a lot of doctrinal error in some of the groups that we'll be talking about and teaching on, trying to help give some ideas, they will say, well, that's what it means to you, but it means this to me. Wait a minute, the truth is still there. It's not a private interpretation. Even though we have individual soul liberty to live, and I'm I'm thankful that if I sin now, I'm still saved. I'm not going to die and go to hell over it. I'm not going to use liberty for an occasion to the flesh. I'm not going to take advantage of it. But I do have to give an account to God for how I hold to the truth of His Word. And that truth does not change. I love discussions. Like I think even in our Sunday school here in the auditorium class, a lot of times we'll we'll have discussion of things. And I cringe. I know what we mean by it when we say it, but I cringe sometimes when we use the phrase, this is what it means to me. (laughs) And I know what we're saying. We're saying this is how I've applied it in my life. But the truth is not different for Brother Keith than it is for me. If it says, thou shalt not kill, that doesn't mean that to Keith it just means to wound badly, and to me it just means to, to beat them up, you know. It's still the same truth. You see the difference? So individual soul liberty, we've got to be careful of this and use this, but it is one of the great tenets of our Baptist faith. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. And we're going to not make it through everything tonight. I'm going to give you these, and then we're going to jump into a quick, brief history. Because if Brother Harold's able to be here next Wednesday, I call, I talked to him today. He's still getting over his bug, whatever bug it is, and he did not want to be contagious tonight. 
he he felt good enough to be here. He just didn't want to pass it on to anybody else. So, all right, Second Corinthians chapter five and verse number ten. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, we must balance this, individual soul liberty, with the teaching of restoration of Scripture. If a brother be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual are to what? Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Did I give you all the wrong verse? Second, Second Corinthians 2. Oh, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians. What did, what did I give you all? I took you to 1 Corinthians 2. Go ahead and write down 2 Corinthians 5.10 because that one's the next verse. I just went to the wrong verse. That's, I, I see everybody looking around puzzled like, where in the world is he at? And none of you raised your hand. So I was just going on. <laughs> there you go. All right. So 2 Corinthians 5.10 is the next one. That's the one I just read. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14. I've got too many notes here, so... 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Individually, if we are saved, we have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us to help us to discern between what's good and what's best, between what's right and what's wrong, to discern what the Bible and Scripture is teaching us. So we've got to be careful of that. All right. Moving on, the S is saved and scripturally baptized membership. Saved and scripturally baptized membership. I'm going to give you these references. We're not going to take time to read them in here. Acts chapter 2, verse number 41 deals with the day at Pentecost, and such were uh, saved and uh, received with gladness the word, were baptized and were added to the church. <coughs> Acts chapter 2, 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. The other one is Acts chapter 8, verse number 36. And again, dealing with uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, which we've already read. Okay? I will say this. uh, Scriptural baptism, uh, even the mode, the Bible talks about the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip going down into the water. Uh, that's, That's hard to do that when you're being sprinkled. Okay? Uh, they went down into the water. That that was the biblical mode or method of baptizing. And again, we're following by example. <clears throat> we believe that the Bible teaches and pictures the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why we have someone stand. We take them under the water representing the death and the burial and then raising them up out of the water, raising to walk in newness of life. And so that's why we do the way we do, but we do go down into the water for baptism. Uh, scriptural baptism must follow, uh, we, we would call it believer's baptism, must follow salvation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, as we go through some history. All right? Two offices, the pastor and deacon, you'll find both of them in one verse of Scripture, Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 1. That's an easy one. Philippians 1 and verse number 1. Two offices of the pastor and deacon. And then lastly, we believe in the separation of church and state. The separation of church and state. 
We do not believe that there ever should be a civil body, a governmental body, that dictates the practices and beliefs, specifically the doctrine of the church. The government has no place deciding and determining doctrine or practice. However, with that in mind, first, uh, let me give you a couple verses. Matthew chapter 22 and verse number 21. Matthew 22 and verse number 21. That being said, First uh, Peter chapter 2, First Peter chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, both of these deal with the fact that we're to render under Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And we are to be obedient to them that have the rule over us, even in civil matters, in so much as it does not go against Scripture. So we are to follow after the civil authorities. God's given them to us, actually, to be watchful and to care for us and to give us safety. I'm thankful I live in America. I'm thankful we have the military and the law enforcement that we have. I'm thankful I can pick up my cell phone and call 911 if my house is on fire. And I have no problem submitting to civil rules that help keep us safe. But when it goes against the contrary doctrines of Scripture, I have an issue with it. When I was married, if my wife had gotten pregnant and the government came in, as it sounds like they're trying to head that direction and said, you're not allowed to have a baby. We're going to abort it for you. I would say, I'm sorry, over my dead body you will. Because now they're in violation of Scripture. But up until then, we're to be good citizens. In fact, we're supposed to be such good citizens that we don't bring a reproach to the name of Christ because of our citizenship. And so, um, yeah, anyway, we're supposed to be watching those things. All right. <clears throat> Let me give you a couple things here. I'm going to go ahead. I've got this up here, but I'm going to draw it out for you because it's going to be easier for you to see. Yeah, this I put this up earlier, and I was like, they are not going to see that. So I'm going to draw some stuff out here for you. All right, so these are the things that Baptists have held to over the years. Now, I'm going to try to do this as quickly as I can. I'm going to give you a lot of stuff. Feel free after this. This is not exhaustive. This is a crash course, okay? Very much so, a crash course. But in 33... A.D., we have Christ being crucified. Uh, he's risen from the dead. He uh, is on the earth for a little while, and then he ascends to heaven and uh, gives the commission, the great commission to the church. Out of that uh, event of the crucifixion, the gospel is now very clear. A lot of churches begin to spring up. The church at Jerusalem, one of the greatest churches, they were running 11, 12,000 people before they ever had their first deacons. <laughs> I don't know how in the world they did that, but they did. And uh, so they had churches. But as persecution moved in, uh, people from Jerusalem began to scatter. The Christians began to scatter. God used that to get them to do what they should have been doing because he told them to go into all the world, and they weren't going. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Acts, these are they which have turned Jerusalem upside down. And they had literally turned, uh, uh, filled Jerusalem, I'm sorry, with their doctrines. And then later on, because of the persecution that was going on and the martyrdom and the Christians fleeing 
The Bible says later on, these are they which have turned the world upside down. You remember that? So we have churches cropping up. The Apostle Paul comes along. And he starts going out on missionary journeys. Paul and Barnabas at first. Later on, Paul and Silas. And uh, so we see some churches cropping up. And uh, for the first hundred or so years, that's great. They have portions of the New Testament. Many of the churches had them in their church. In fact, up until I think it was 300 A.D., you could actually go see the actual handwritten letters that Paul had sent to the church. I think it was Smyrna. They have historical records that those letters were still at the pulpit as late as 300 A.D. And uh, you could actually go physically see Paul's handwriting. Wouldn't that have been something? Uh, Just in the scriptures. And uh, so for about 100 years, there 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 was good doctrine. Everybody was following pretty much what they should do. But over time, some things began to creep in. Look at, look, turn your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 2 real quick. We're going to read a few verses, and then we're going to move on here. Revelation chapter number 2. John is giving God's words. God is sending by uh, John uh, letters, seven letters to seven different churches. These are literal churches that were in existence during that time. There are some people that believe that these seven letters also seem to map out historical time periods of the church age, now since the time of Christ, and believe that we, the day that we live in, is the time period of the Laodiceans, where we're lukewarm and we have need of nothing and say we're rich and increased with goods. And that certainly identifies the the time we live in, doesn't it? Uh, Whether or not that holds true or not is up for debate. I would not debate anyone on that. It certainly does seem to line up through history that these would also identify periods of church history, but these are literal churches that were in existence when John wrote this letter. Look with me, verse chapter number 2. Under the the angel of the church at Ephesus write these things, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know thy work and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Now that's a good statement. That's what we ought to be doing today. And hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Well, who were the Nicolaitans? These were people going around claiming to be Christians, but they didn't hold to the Christian doctrine. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. So there were groups that were cropping up. Look in verse number 8. None of the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? These things saith the first and last, he that was dead in his life. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So we see that, that error and false teaching is beginning, even this early in the church history, to creep in. We have several world empires that take place. Daniel was alive during the Babylonian Empire. That was under Nebuchadnezzar and his grandson Belshazzar. And uh, then Belshazzar was such a wicked king that God brings in the Medes and the Persians. And uh, it was two, two uh, co- countries that were together as, a, as an empire. And Daniel also served under the Medes and the Persians. In fact, Darius, uh, or Darius, however you want to pronounce it, uh, was the one responsible for the story of Daniel and the lion's den. That was uh, the, uh, the king of the Medes, uh, or Persians. I can't remember which one now. But anyway, I think the king of the Medes, if I remember right. 
So he served under both of those world empires. After the Medes and the Persians arise the empire of Greece. You remember that? The Grecian Empire? And uh, they were conquered, the Medes and Persians were conquered by a young man by the name of Alexander. We know him in history as Alexander the Great, okay? By 29, he had conquered the known world. Alexander the Great, when he first went into battle, or one of the battles he went into, claims to have seen a vision of a sign of a cross in the sky. And because of that, Alexander the Great claimed Christianity as his faith and made it uh, required in his empire for everyone to be baptized into the Christian faith. And, but there was problems with that. A lot of people were beginning to believe different things. So we find that in 325 A.D., he gets a bunch of these church leaders together and says, and has an ecumenical council. Okay, I, I explained what ecumenical was earlier, so you would know. They have an ecumenical council, and the council was called, you don't need to know the name, but if you want to, if you want to look it up later, Nicaea. Okay, the council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. They all come together and they say, okay, we differ on these doctrines, but we can agree on these doctrines. And they come up with the Nicene Creed. And these are the very beginnings of the Roman Catholic Church. All right? Now, over here on this side, we have the apostles, who are the pastors of most of the early churches that we know about in our Bible. Peter, of course, pastored the church where? Anybody remember? Peter pastored the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Good job, okay? Uh, but again, there were some, some other churches that were starting to have doctrinal error. So there were, there were certain people that would say, okay, we're going to separate because we believe those people are in error and we're going to follow after what we believe to be the distinctives that we just gave you, the Baptist distinctives, the doctrines of our Baptist faith, what we hold to, okay? There are groups, small groups, remnant groups that do this. They're known by different names. The first ones that popped up were... Uh, Montanists. And they were at 150 AD. Okay? After them rises up a group, because again, they started to get a, go kind of haywire after about 100 years or so. And so we have the Novations. Now we can't remember the dates of these. 200 A.D. And then later on we have the Donatists. They were at about 300 A.D. And then we have the Paulicians. At about 600 A.D. And if you study these groups, you'll find that when the groups started, they were doctrinally pure, according to Scripture, but as they would go on, as any group does, it seemed to deteriorate and to decline. 
and they begin to get into doctrine error, and then another group would have to rise up behind them. All right? Then we have the Cathars. Oh. And I'm going to give you several names here, and then we're going to be done. Cathars. From 1100, oops. Uh, let's make that from 1080 to 1500 AD. We're going to have these groups that come in. You're going to have the Cathars. Um, you're going to have the Albigenses. Interesting note about the Albigenses, they were in existence from about one, a little shortly after 1000. In 1209, in, well, let me back up for a few minutes, okay? So let's go back over here in uh, these, these councils that are taking place. We see the establishment of a group. They are not known as the Roman Catholic Church at this point, but it's that group that is going to form for the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, church. And then uh, they have another conference in 343 A.D., because they didn't get everything settled, they started bickering again, having problems. They decided we're going to come up with some more doctrines that we hold to. And this is the Council of Sedica or Sedica, I don't know how you pronounce that. S-E-D-I-C-A. Okay? And then we're going to have in uh, 360 AD, we're going to have the first council. Constantinople. All right, Constantinople, that looks like a B, but it's 360 AD. My handwriting is not the best. These are the councils that basically form the, the basis and the structure for the Roman Catholic Church. Now, around 1000 BC, the Roman Catholic Church uh, starts to become corrupt. I'm not going to go a lot into detail because I don't know how much Brother Harold's going to deal with next week on this. But I will say that we finally enter into the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages happened because the Roman Catholic Church held uh, the people in bondage as far as education, as far as reading. They did not believe that the common man should be able to read because if he could read, then he might try to read the scriptures. And they didn't want him reading the scriptures. So then we have the Inquisition. We have the Dark Ages. Uh, we have the Holy Wars starting to go on. Uh, the Crusades happened during this time. But in 1209, in the Pope heard about these Albigenses over here that were holding to the doctrines of Scripture and they were not following the doctrinal agreement that all these ecumenical groups had come up with over the years that by now are very, very corrupt according to Scripture. And so the Pope sends um, his army over to this city where these Albigenses are. There's 60,000 people in this city. And they slaughter the entire city. One of the soldiers spoke up as they were starting and said, but sir, there are some folks in this town that will belong to the Roman Catholic Church, or the, the church, they called it. And the man in charge said, kill them all. God will know which ones are his. And they slaughtered the entire city. 
I've, I've gone through 1,500 years of church history in about eight, ten minutes here. That kind of stuff right here that happened in 1209 happened all along here. 